you know, there are lots of areas where, um, you know, a niche sports, uh, you know, pickleball, for example, um, you know, are, are, oh, are, no. are, he went there, Tim. He went there. <laughs> uh, you know, they, these these are these are going to to, to, to rise quite a bit. Um, so whether it's pickleball, whether it's esports, uh, you know, there, there's lots of these activities that 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 I think now we're thinking about. Okay, how do we monetize these? You know, what is the business of all of these different areas? Um, how can we get fans more excited about uh, 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 things instead of those annoy that annoying plastic sound with pickleball um, you know some of these things if i'm gonna poke a little fun at tim that's that's so. one of the least annoying things about pickleball <laughs> it's pretty annoying tim are, you, tim are you a pickleballer no no He's, no i have been blackballed by the pickleball he, he industry is, for he, my this, vehement and consistent scorn and ridicule of the sport not oh. as a participatory sport Welcome to Wait What? Sportsman's Chat with DP and McGee, the podcast where we take a sometimes cynical, sometimes irreverent, and even a sometimes serious look at the business of sports. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Paro. David, let's get started. We got a lot to get through today. So what's on your mind? Well, we have a great show today, by the way, and I'm, I'm really excited that we're bringing it because it's a show that we'll talk about in a little bit, but is one that we've envisioned for a long time. Every, uh, but that, every show is great. Every well, every show is great, of course, and we and I think we say that. Don't we? <laughs> we at least tell ourselves. We even that. believe that's it. how <laughs> this show is great. <laughs> it's our own affirmation every time. But I wanted to talk about a sports and entertainment property that we have not touched on, uh, but it does capture a lot of news, and uh, that's WWE. And also a few of the other, and I'm not sure we'd call, we wouldn't really call WWE a fight sport. Uh, because of its, you know, more entertainment value and, and staged aspect, but uh, also some news in the UFC and in PFL space as well, the Professional Fighters League. Um, but in WWE, big news coming out with Stephanie McMahon stepping down or resigning from her position um, as uh, running WWE along with Nick Khan um, and Vince McMahon coming back somewhat in force after what looked to be a somewhat unceremonious departure uh, from the organization. But as Vince comes back into the behemoth that is WWE, so come the discussions of the selling of uh, the organization. So a lot of rumors are obviously, you know, starting about who the logical potential buyer are and they, uh, you know, who might be interested in, uh, in this entity. And I'm sure obviously discussions are already going on. But they certainly range from media outlets, Comcast, for instance, or Disney, um, to organizations such as uh, you know WME Endeavor, which own uh, UFC, which own PBR, um, and they have a history of uh, of these type of uh, entities. But certainly, the sovereign wealth funds will come into play as well, and some talk about uh, a Saudi Arabia private investment fund PIF. Um, your same organization that owns and operates Live Golf uh, mm -hmm. would be fairly logical as well. So lots of stuff. I mean, that's th this is all fairly big news because it happened really quickly, and this was a surprise with with Stephanie McMahon stepping back. Now, you know, Paul Triple H um, Levesque still is uh, in his position. He happens to be Stephanie McMahon's husband, mm -hmm. uh, former, you know like legendary wrestler and and now head of content at WWE is still in place. Uh, and of course, along with uh, the aforementioned Nick Khan. So, um, but yeah, just really fascinating times. And I think a lot of eyes on, uh, uh, you know, going on over into that space. So there's a, there's a lot of news around combat sports, right? Jake Paul, not his brother, Logan, <laughs> just took an equity stake in the PFL, right? We'll be bringing his talents to the professional fighters league. Uh, and then there's the, the news surrounding Dana White, um, you know, as was widely reported on New Year's Eve, he, uh, he got into a physical altercation with his wife um, and has rightly been called to task on that. I, I think um, not excusing his behavior in any way, shape or form, I think he has handled that 
as as well as could be ex expected, right? He came out and gave an unqualified apology. Um, you know, and again, that's between, uh, you know, assuming there was not a crime involved, and I don't know if he's been charged or if there's any investigation into whether he'll be charged with a crime. Um, I think that's between he and his wife. Um, but I, I know that it's a, it's a story that does not seem to be going away. Right? Jamel Hill, former personality on ESPN, um, came out and called her former employer to task, saying that they took it very easy on on Dana White. And I know you, uh, you know, you saw his reaction to that, or or his reaction to some reports that some media outlets that have an interest in UFC have been taking it easy on him. Well, in a lot of ways, Dana White is UFC, right? I mean, as mm -hmm. much as some of these big stars have have uh, have have made it big uh, and have huge followings, uh, Dana White is the face of this sport more so i believe than the than some of the top fighters he's at every big weigh-in he is the one to speak on it i've seen him uh interviewed at various events from time to time he's a fascinating interview uh very upfront very bombastic and that's part of the brand of, of ufc uh, listen there's never uh there's never an excuse for um you know for i think violence in any way outside of outright defense. This was captured, uh, particularly, uh, you know, violence against women by men is something that has been uh, tolerated and excused, I think, um, in within sports uh, for too long. And I'm, I, I think that's where Jamel Hill is coming from mm -hmm. uh, on this. Um, I do agree that he has, his statements have been good and I think measured um, versus some of the rhetoric that he, you know, speaks uh, uh, often because he is, I mean, he is very, very opinionated and he shares those thoughts, but yeah, he's been thoughtful in this and recognizing that he did something, that he did something wrong. And, and yes, I think he has apologized. So I'm, you know, I, I, I agree that he's handled it well. Um, I don't think he necessarily should, you know, automatically, you know, step down for this. Should there be some, some degree of, of, of punishment? I think we'll have to see, but in some ways, because of his in significance with the sport, he's probably dealt with a little a, a little lighter than he might uh, he might otherwise. Uh, but we'll have to see how it how it plays out. I mean, I do think it's interesting with the Jake Paul signing to uh, uh, PFL and what that could mean at a potentially vulnerable time for UFC uh, as a competitor because uh, it's a big get. I mean, you know, Jake Paul is a massive massive social media star and has had some degree of success actually getting in the boxing ring mm -hmm. now he's you know he's taking it to the you know to an mma type of fight which will be very different but i mean this guy you know both jake and logan seem to put themselves in interesting position and come out smelling pretty good yeah i i don't know if this is a temporary bump in the road for ufc i will say two things one i love jamel hill i, I love her take on pretty much everything um, but as it relates to Dana White, he may be the only person in the WME Endeavor universe that's got a bigger personality than Ari Emanuel. Right. I tr just trying to just trying to think of anybody else over there. Certainly, some of the people at some of the other uh, properties that they own, uh, there's no shortage of egos, but n nothing like. Yeah, and it's the brand, right? It's the brand yeah. of the UFC. There's no doubt about it. It's kind of a take no prisoners. Uh, attitude take no shit let's just say what it is yeah yeah I, i'm not you know listen personally i'm not a fan of combat sports but um but i am not the target audience but but you are a fan of wwe right uh yeah a little bit so and we don't want to necessarily lump those because they are two different things very two, kind of two in this, very different things but in, in this world i mean this much news happening in in kind of those that related world i think has been uh interesting over the last couple of weeks Listen, I think WWE has written the textbook on how to create a sport that is multimedia, creates huge media stars out of its uh, out of its participants, and isn't in fact actually a sport. Right? It has deliberately not registered with state athletic commissions as a sport to allow it to really play up the entertainment aspect of it. I'm saying right now we need to get Triple H on the show. Okay. All right. Let's see if we can do that. All right. 
Um, what about you? Uh, a couple of quick hits. One, one, I, one thing I found today, uh, which I find particularly interesting. So when major sporting events come to the city, uh, to a city, whether it's the Final Four or the Super Bowl, uh, All-Star Games, the leagues and the, the, the local municipalities, cities, counties mostly, create the clean zone around the venues, right, where the events will be taking place. Um, and that's to protect sponsors who pay good money and um, protect them from, from guerrilla marketing, ambush marketing attempts. There is a property owner in Glendale, Arizona, who is suing the city um, on First Amendment grounds, saying that they don't have the right to approve what his uh, what his advertising should be on billboards and other out-of-home media that he has on the property that he controls. So it's a really interesting take, and I think it potentially has huge implications uh, if the court finds in his favor. I don't know if this is going to this suit is going to be viewed on an expedited basis because the Super Bowl is coming in what three weeks now. Um, but it, it's something that I, I want to continue to watch. If he had the right to put up, for argument's sake, an AT&T billboard 51 weeks out of the year, right? It didn't violate any of those zoning ordinances. Mm -hmm. But that one or two weeks when the Super Bowl comes to town, he's not able to run that billboard because Verizon is a league sponsor. Then he might very well have a case. This is clearly a question from Mike McCann of University yes. of New Hampshire. Yes. Right? And, we could ask and, Mike McCann of Amazon. He, doesn't have a lot of but but he's a smart guy. Yes, he is. And why um and, and why it would matter at this time is obviously that's when you'd be maximizing your value of that you know piece of property, of that asset. So yeah, no, definitely uh, definitely an interesting one. With uh, you know one of the it's it's funny because sometimes these these small things be you know have these longstanding implications. So it'll be interesting to see if it ends up in a settlement uh, or uh, or something where the bulldozer of the um, of the league just kind of comes and figures out a way to run over it with, uh, with all kinds of legal. Yeah. Legal I mean, guns. The, easy, the easiest thing to do is just pay three X what he would have gotten from a, an ambush marketer and give that space to either league can, you know, league messaging or right. sponsor messaging of right. one of the league's partners, but right. we'll see. But, uh, you know, on a, on a related note, uh, Fox has announced that they are 95% sold out of their Super Bowl inventory and they're getting $7 million a spot. I just want to go on record now and say, if there's anybody who wanted to get in the Super Bowl and couldn't give us a call, we'll get you prime placement on the podcast. We can do features. We can even do an NFL segment. If that's the, you know, the topic that you want to specifically uh, be associated with. So yeah, we can, we can work out all kinds of things for, you know, a small portion of that. Well, I think that's a good time to take a quick break. We have some great guests coming up and a great discussion in front of us. So uh, we will talk to you on the other side. It's time for our guest. So we are really excited to be doing something for the first time, something that David and I have been talking about since very early in our podcasting careers. We have three really esteemed uh, educators from three very respected sports management programs. So it is our distinct pleasure to introduce Lisa Delpy Narati, who's the director of the sports management degree program at George Washington University. Will Norton, the sports management graduate program director at Eisenberg School of Management, UMass Amherst. And David Hedlund, chairperson of the division of sports management at St. John's University and my boss. So... <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Before we get started, Lisa, I told you before we came on the air, I was going to give you a long uh, overdue shout out. Um, almost 30 years ago, um, I was making a career change and I went into the bookstore and I found a book called The Ultimate Guide to Sport Event Management and Marketing. And I read that book and my eyes were opened the light bulb went over my head. I distinctly remember there was a checklist of the personality traits uh, that somebody should exhibit and display if they wanted to be in the event management business. 
And I checked off virtually every one of them. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I just wanted to take this public forum to thank you for that. Um, it, it truly changed my life. Well, and the sports industry was better for it as well. So oh, you are too kind. Thank you. So let's let's get started. You, you've all taken a very different career path to get into higher education. So, um, Lisa, why don't you tell us how you got into um, being an educator and a professor and, and ultimately a director of the program at George Washington? Right. I was a competitive swimmer. I always wanted to make it to the Olympic Games, but never did. And so I turned my passion for the Olympics into business side. And I first actually went to work at the U.S. Olympic uh, Training Center in Colorado Springs as a junior in the exercise science department. Uh, and at that point, there were only three interns. You know, now they've got 100 and something <clears throat> working at the U.S. Olympic Committee. But um, I, part of my role was to take people on uh, on VIP tours of the, the center. And I realized I like being out of the lab more than in the lab. And so that's when I realized I wanted to move towards the business side of sport uh, more than working with um, testing and strength training, et cetera. And, and David, you, you have a background as, as an elite athlete as well. How did you get into higher education? Yeah, thanks. And similar to Lisa, I mean, I was a competitive soccer player and the United States is well known for making, you know, pretty decent goalkeepers. Um, and so I had some designs on following, you know, similar kinds of steps. Um, but I took the an, a more international path, um, you know, Japan, um, Taipei, uh, back to the United States, kind of kind of a, 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 a mishmash of different experiences, had some entrepreneurial opportunities and got a master's degree in public administration in there. And, um, you know, that's kind of one thing that's that was really interesting about my career path compared to others, um, because at the time I did not know about Lisa's book. Um, so I was not that light bulb did not go off over my head. And so I was working at a, a, a university and what major is closest to kind of studying sports? This is decades ago. Um, and public administration kind of seemed like that that thing. And so that was, you know, that was kind of my my first foray. But yeah, I mean, eventually got a got a got a got a doctorate at Florida State and um and then decades later here here I am at uh, St. John's. Wow. And Will, you took a very different path as well. Yeah, I mean I I may be the only one here without the elite athletic pass, but I was a, I was a college uh, baseball player at a Division three school. Um, and I say to students today, I mean, my path is, I look back at it, it, it was a little untraditional. I didn't do a lot of uh, sport business other than being an athlete. I didn't really look at sports as a career in undergrad. I was a pre-law, um, went to work in corporate law in Chicago right out of undergraduates. Um, I went to the College of Worcester in Ohio. Um, and within a year, realized that that probably wasn't going to be where I'd be happiest and, and sort of stumbled into um, a research and analytics firm uh, called Stats Inc. in the northern suburbs of Chicago that was doing some really interesting work with kind of the intersection of early data, tech, visual tracking of players on field and on court. Um, I interviewed there and I'll never forget the, the sort of 100 question interview included questions about the Simpsons, uh, 1960s baseball trivia. It was they were looking for people who really understood the history of the game. And uh, I worked at SAS for about five years before moving into some other roles um, in corporate partnerships with the Celtics and finally on the agency side. So I say to students now, I mean, I don't know if you can afford in our industry now to do no sport internships in undergrad and make your way in because it is just much more competitive than it was 20 years ago. But, um, it, you know, UMass has always been a special place. I was a graduate of our dual degree program as well. So I, I ended up making my way back home sort of to Amherst. Um, I'm very lucky to have been surrounded by allies and mentors uh, from UMass who have given me some opportunities to be on the faculty side and work with students. This would be the first time we've had a shout out to the Fighting Scots of the College of Worcester. I, I would be, I'm, a, I'm a Scotsman by birth. That's how yeah. I know it. <laughs> yes. 
I want I want to give uh, Will and and UMass Amherst and, and your program a special shout out here because we've had I think three guests on this program that have come out of the program: Pam Batalis, Russ Spielman, David Wright. Does that sound right? Maybe Wonderful. maybe maybe one more. I am not putting any pressure on you, Lisa and David, but uh, we certainly uh, love getting guests that have been through programs that we can talk about things on that angle as well. So kind of moving on, I'm going to throw this out to you first, uh, Will, is, you know, obviously you have a lot of core requirements that your students must follow through on. Uh, what additional uh, coursework do you generally recommend outside of, of those things to make sure that people are coming out of these programs uh, particularly in your case on the graduate side with as much with as much preparedness as they possibly can yeah good question i i think one benefit of you know the mccormick department of sport management's in in the, the business school so we really lean pretty heavily on um some of the sport adjacent topics and and courses that you can take that'll sharpen some of your quantitative skills whether that be you know a negotiations course or or business intelligence or even now you know more more students getting into coding so i mean there's an ecosystem in the business school of courses that we sort of you know lightly suggest students be curious about knowing that their role in sports could be you know pretty pretty demanding on the functional side of of what they're expected to, to come in with with skill development um i also think though just outside of classroom we we try to push um, pretty intentional mentoring and, and networking. Uh, we always sign our students with grad mentors, but also um, really encourage them to reach out into sort of the second and third degrees of, of uh, alums, but also non-alums working in sports to actually ask them what their job is, what skills are, are necessary for that job and how to sort of map their career to that job if it's something of interest for them. Um, those interviews and informational chats i think really sharpen emotional intelligence soft skills learning how to sell yourself um, those little things that I, I just really feel make the difference between a student who understands the industry but isn't sure how to enter it versus a student that really sees the macro level of sports as a business and is also capable of having conversations with people who can help them yeah uh, before I ask David if there's anything that you wanted to add to that, we do have this tradition where if someone says that's a good question or a great question, we usually acknowledge who did the question. Just so no one thinks that they have to balance it out and say that was a good question. That was Tim's question. <laughs> Tim, 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 like utterly dominated these because when I saw what he wrote, I'm like, ah, they're good. Don't need to add anything. Um, anyway, just but thank you for acknowledging that. And that yeah, is David, Tim. It's, David, it's, good, it's good as David, I. I mean, I asked it brilliantly, but. Yes, no, but you don't you don't want to mess with mediocrity when it comes to my questions. <laughs> David, anything else you might want to add in terms of what you're doing at St. John's? See, now I'm going to give a shout out back to Tim because I don't <laughs> want him thinking that we've hired mediocre faculty at St. John's University. <laughs> no, no, my, my my teaching, and I will show you my my annual my my. Uh, oh, I, my I know what they are. The chairperson. So. <laughs> that's that's, that's why David agreed to come on. If I was a mediocre <laughs> professor, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have agreed to come on. Sure, but <laughs> jokes aside, and you know that's a good questions aside. Um, you know, as, as as Will was talking about how um, the McCormick School is in the in the in the in the, in the College of Business up there, um, you know, here at St. John's, the Sport Management Program is in Professional Studies, um, and so Professional Studies is composed of areas with a very manifest focus on providing and educating and giving students opportunities to to get skills that they're going to be able to use in the workplace um, and finding opportunities whether it's internships or, or or otherwise we really lean pretty heavily on some of these and so a, a good parallel adjacent comment to go along with wills would be we we have an advisor board at, at st john's um and so it's composed of industry experts certainly being in new york city is is quite advantageous and we take advantage of this as a lot of our alumni are able to work for the professional sports teams and arenas and 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 and, and other groups here around the city and so we rely very heavily on them to tell us what's going on in industry and then 
based on what's going on in industry, what what are the types of courses that that, that we need? Um, and so, for example, a few years ago, we had a, a sales course that we amended to be more of sales and revenue and sponsorship and a lot of the revenue generating functions. And so we took an existing course and we kind of updated it based on, on some of the recommendations that were, were coming back. Um, to kind of my, my, my new core, though, I'll, I'll give a very David, David answer, um, you know, eSports today. Um, is is something that I think is is really important that a lot of students need to be thinking about because more and you know organizations have recognized that consumers they like a an NFL team and they also may play Madden they like an MLS team they they may play FIFA they've recognized some of these some of these overlaps and parallels and they're trying to leverage them for for mutual benefit and so you know esports is a, is an is an area now where many of the functions we're doing in in traditional sports are mirrored in esports despite its electronic nature and it can be done pretty much all online there are face to face events and, and some of these other kinds of activities so um, you know esports in the last 5 years has been something that that really has kind of come about i think covid has kind of fueled its its rise to some extent and so you know the the opportunity to find out what's actually going on out there in the workplace this really informs i think at the curriculum at, at certainly at St. John's but i know certainly at my at our at my colleagues here at this uh, podcast uh, at their finance institutions as well. Lisa. Thank yeah. Thank you, David, for bringing up uh, eSports. Uh, I started teaching the business of eSports seven years ago when we were just barely talking about it. And, you know, that's what we try to do at GW is always stay one step ahead of the curve. Um, I remember when social media, I wrote one of these first papers about sports and the internet. Um, and I remember getting a, <clears throat> a message back from the IOC saying, oh, the internet is nothing. I'm like, oh, now I, I always laugh at, I still have that, that uh, letter um, because you know they were all protecting the broadcast rights, obviously. But anyway, so you know, it's always looking at the trends and staying one step ahead. But what I'm finding is obviously, everybody wants somebody who knows how to do Excel. And, and not just you know one plus one, but more of the functions in Excel, as well as Tableau. Being able to crunch the data is one thing, but being able to display it and then you know so everybody can understand it is important. And then R. Uh, but besides those graphic skills, I mean, I have had students that have you know gone from an intern to full time position because their graphic skills were so good in pre presenting decks. Um, pitch decks for both athletes and sponsors, um, Adobe, you know, Photoshop, and then also Premiere um, Pro. We have a sport video production class because we know that everybody's looking for short video clips now. And it's so important to know how to produce, edit, and, and create these, these skills. Sales is always one. I say sales is so important just for yourself to present yourself but every job has some component of sales involved. So those are some areas that I think are important to highlight. A lot of times a, a young man or young woman comes into a sports management program, um, typically, but not always the undergraduate program with these grandiose ideas that they're going to become the next general manager of the New York Yankees or the next super agent. Um, <laughs> How do you how do you guide people like that without sort of, you know, quashing their dreams, but putting them on the path that might be more realistic in terms of getting a, a viable career in the sports industry? So, um, David, we'll start with you in that question. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it certainly is is a challenge when there there are these really it is more likely you will become a a, a, a senator, um, you know, or a House of Representatives member in government, than to become a general manager of of a major league baseball team. Uh, statistically, the, the the it's not in your favor. Um, but 
at the same point in time, therein lies the opportunity that I, that I'm I'm sure all of us are are are, are going to discuss. My little take on this would be, is is first educating the students about there's more than just professional sports. There are so many areas. Even though we call it sport management or sports management, there is nonprofit sports management. You know the Olympics, which 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 Lisa was just describing. You know there are computer science areas. I'm sure we could have a fun debate about Excel versus R, Python, SQL. You know, should we be teaching these in our sport management classes or should we leave that to more computer science? So, some of these different kinds of things. But there are so many different opportunities in sport organizations, different types of sport organizations, recreational sports, nonprofit sports, high school, elementary, all sorts of different types of opportunities. So I think that's a good jumping off point just for how do we not quash the dreams, which Tim was a good question. So um, I guess that that point headland for um, the, the statement, uh, but that I think that's really important is that there are more than just opportunities in the front office of a professional sports team. Lisa, how do you advise your students who come in with thoughts like that? I say, you know, keep your goal, but you have to get in and prove yourself and be known. So what is it that's going to set you apart from others? And I have them read bios of GMs. Many of them have come through um, sales. They were top salespeople. Some people came through um, public relations. They're working hand in hand. You know, I know some people who have come through uh, video analysis. So, you know, what is it that you're going to get in and be the best possible one and, and get noticed by the executives? So, you know, revenue gets noticed, right? Standing out and doing great work gets noticed. And it's, it often takes just that unique ability for yourself to shine um, in a specific skill set that then translates to moving up higher. And Will, your thoughts? Yeah, Lisa and David make a lot of really good points here. I, I sort of like to start with students just talking about how at least on the graduate side that um you know a master's program is really it's about introspection and about really being honest with where your skills and values and career ambitions align i think a lot of students give that answer of i'd like to be the gm or i'd like to be in the front office you know 60 70 percent of the time they might be giving that answer because they're truly not aware of the other opportunities that marry up the same skills but that are probably going to give them a higher uh, success point in terms of or success rate in terms of entry as well as maybe a, a greater happiness um, or quality of life um so you know educating around other opportunities that are that maybe give them we do a clifton strengths test in our in our entry level professional development class to say what is it really that you're passionate about and what are then what are the careers that map to those skills so i'm a good example of this i i was at stats for five years thought i wanted to be a, a baseball scout you know, interned with the team and started to realize that I wasn't sure if I wanted to travel the U.S. for 15 years and be kind of a nomad scouting baseball players. What I really loved was was data driven insights and then being able to, you know, make changes to policy based on data, which there's that in sponsorship. There's that in event management. There's, you know, a lot of that in media and distribution. So if students can sort of see the, the 60,000 foot view, I think you can tell them that, hey, there's other branches on that tree. And if you still want to be the GM of the Red Sox, fine, but just recognize there's 30 of those and you're going to have, that's a long road and you're going to have to get it, you know, get the skills and network you need early. Um, and it doesn't happen overnight. So, Guys, really great insight on that. And I think some wonderful lessons uh, in the words that you said and all, and all this stuff that I'm hearing from you is very reflective of conversations that I have when people, you know, come and say, yeah, I'm interested in this career path and this is what I want to do. They really haven't even thought through all of the different things, which is one of the reasons I think it's so wonderful that there are these programs out there where people can study and learn about the different disciplines. So speaking of the discipline, when you look back at from the time that you guys, you know, got involved in educating, what do you see as the biggest changes in what the sport management discipline even is, you know, now from when you joined, I, I will say from my standpoint, it's like, a, it, it looks like a complete sea change from when I was back in college, because 
these things didn't really even exist. But over the course of the time you've been involved in it, you know, how has how has the discipline itself shifted? I'll oh, start with Lisa on this one. <laughs> You're ready to go, Lisa. There you go. Uh, well, Thank over you. the course of time, I mean, this is my 32nd year teaching. Um, I've seen a complete commercialization and professionalization of youth sports. And again, most people don't come into our master's program saying, oh, I, I want to go run the Little League. But there are there's a lot of money involved in these youth sports programs and in all the different vendors and associated businesses that uh, align with those youth sports programs. Um, the other thing that I've noticed is a lot more of duty of care um, from coll collegiate athletics. Look at the mental and physical health um, concern and uh, I think all industry professionals are now going through a, an, an acknowledgement and understanding of what they need to do to make sure that the athletes and people around them are healthy, uh, both mentally and physically, uh, and diversity, right? <clears throat> so those are the hot you know, items right now. Yeah. I, I'm sure all three of us could, could discuss it at length, the quantification of sports and how that is that has fundamentally changed um, our perspectives on things. So I will I will let that lie for now. Um, I would probably say the internationalization of sports. Um, interestingly, if I kind of take the the great points that Lisa was making, probably the way in which you look at maybe European sports right now is the place now where American sports was, you know, twenty or thirty years ago. But now, as Lisa was just describing so well, there, it's been commercialized to, to quite an extent, um, where there is a business of youth sports um, that my eight-year-old, you know, in terms of what it's going to cost for him to do baseball and soccer and all these different kinds of trainings can be can be can be pretty high. Um, but when you look today at, at the internationalization of sports, um, there's still quite a focus on more of the rec recreational and health benefit sides. But they're certainly now looking for lots of revenue sources. When we when we see examples such as the Super League, um, you know, a couple of years ago, and and how that kind of shifted this focus onto, hey, can some of these elite football, uh, soccer teams, you know, make even more money and generate revenues and fans around the world? Some of these some of these types of things. I, I think a lot has changed, and it's not just limited to one part of the world that around the world, um, you know, even in, in countries that, you know, haven't traditionally been well known, Jamaica and bobsledding, you know, there are lots of areas where, um, you know, a niche sports, uh, you know, pickleball, for example, um, you know, are, 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 oh, are, no. are, he went there, Tim. He went there. <laughs> uh, you know, they, these, these are, these are going to, 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 to rise quite a bit. Um, so whether it's pickleball, whether it's esports, uh, you know, there, there's lots of these activities that 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 I think now we're thinking about. Okay, how do we monetize these? You know, what is the business of all of these different areas? Um, how can we get fans more excited about uh, 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 things instead of those annoy that annoying plastic sound with pickleball? Um, <laughs> you know, some of these things. If I'm going to poke a little fun at Tim, that's that's so. one of the least annoying things about pickleball. <laughs> it's pretty annoying. Tim, are you, Tim, are you a pickleballer? No, 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 I have been blackballed by the pickleball he, industry he is, for my he, this, vehement and consistent scorn and ridicule of the sport, not oh. as a participatory sport, but as yeah. a viable commercial opportunity yeah. in the near term. No, let's put it no. this, I, let's, I'm all in on pickleball. Okay, <laughs> Lisa, let, let, let's say this. The entire show has not been particularly high on pickleball, but Sorry, by, by in comparison... I am a hero to the pickleball world, whereas Tim, just because he's been very blatant about it. They, they call me the pickleball pariah. I have you it's tried my... it? It's an I have played it. We, I have played it. We um we have nothing against it as a uh, as a fun recreational game. It's one well, of the few that. sports that I could probably complete compete on an elite level at my age and and physical stamina. <laughs> I can tell you my my average players are spending a lot of money on their rackets and you know their power. See now see now that I can understand. I think, and that. I have and, and I have said ball. that. 
Yeah. And the tournaments, sports tourism. I can tell you all these people who are type A have lots of money and even some that may not, they're traveling the world playing pickleball right now. It's a reason for them to travel and go to clinics. I can't believe how many people are going to camps and it's all money. And that's what sports about. And we have we have said in the past that we believe that if you are going to invest in pickleball, you should probably invest in either apparel or equipment or maybe uh, building courts because of the explosive growth in participation. Right. I just don't see it getting uh, the commercial support in terms of media and sponsorships in, in any time in the in the near future. I, I, I don't want to sidetrack this before. Will has a chance to answer that last question, but Lisa, yeah. are you saying that people like will travel to other countries specifically to play pickleball because there's like better pickleball courts or something there no. or, or it's a better pickleball environment? It's to camp. It's to, to play. Oh. It's tournaments and youth tournaments. I just got a call from two colleagues that ran into each other and found out I was the connection and they were at their, their kids, their grandkids and one child playing youth pickleball. It is now, there's tournaments all over the United States internationally. Um, it, it's amazing. It's a, a it's a huge business right now. Okay. Go, Will, if you'd like to chime in on pickleball, that'd be great. <laughs> because we, cl we clearly know that the academic community is squarely behind pickleball. Uh, but... Will, if you want to, uh, you know, discuss anything in terms of the changes on the, you know, that you've seen. Yeah, yeah the, the CEO of USA Pickleball, Stu Upson, is a is a guy who uh, our department chair, Steve McKelvey, worked with in Major League Baseball and who I actually did a consulting project with when I was in grad school. So I'm trying to get a hold of them to to see what we can do for our students to, to look at the future. And, and we are trying to get Stu on the show, by the way. He's great. Yeah. Great guy. I've heard that. Um, so, you know, I think. I was going to say, I, I do wonder, my my quick two cents on pickleball is about the viewership, and it sort of dovetails with my other uh, answer to the, the previous question, which is that I think just the cost of creation has just gone down so much from a tech standpoint in the last over 15 years that it's sort of, while the industry fundamentals are still largely intact, I think we've seen so much disruption from on the distribution side that it, it sort of feels to me as a discipline when we think about our curriculum, what we're teaching, the companies we expose students to, um, it really feels like we sort of, you know, at, at least our colleague, my, my faculty members, and I feel like we sort of need to incubate our students with a curiosity of what's next because things happen. What happens every six months now used to happen every 10 years. It just feels like that, that curve from a tech and innovation standpoint is happening so quickly that um, we're, it's incumbent on us to understand how consumers digest things, but also how companies, international and domestic, can be better at controlling their content. And I think we're all, you know, maybe oversaturated with the word content on podcasts, especially as, you know, you can listen to dozens of hours a week on content distribution. But that to me has really been the, the, the sort of sea change in sport management is how do we as an entertainment entity that is also a global business, how do we lead from the front with the right types of, of distribution and how does that how is that equitably distributed as well so is, is you know when we look at women's sports there's definitely been a sea change in the last five six seven years commercially some of that has happened because of distribu distributors who have stepped up and prioritized those entities or those properties that will continue to happen and if media and seeing something is the sort of entry point of caring about something we we need to be very purposeful with what we get to see and and how that is produced professionally um so that's sort of a roundabout way of saying i think as a discipline i really look at technology um as the one thing that has ultimately shifted how we consume how we produce sport and how we teach sport want to talk about the importance of getting real world experience whether it's before you enter a program while you're in a program um, and so I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Lisa, I would like to start with you because you have you have taken it to a, a level that few other programs have. And so I want you to talk a little bit about what you do with your students uh, around the Olympic Games and, and World Cups. And then talk about internships in, in general. Right. Well, um, we're fortunate. GW's backed us, uh, backed me 
from the beginning of, of taking students to the Olympic Games and World Cup to, to get that behind the scenes experience and hands-on experience. So coming right back from Qatar, where I had um, 16 students, we were, you know, went over there, volunteered for the organizing committee, and we were in different roles from media, marketing, ticketing, guest services. And we all had different stadiums and different roles. So it was great that we can compare and discuss, um, for example, second day of World Cup, the ticket app goes down. Our students were in ticketing, right? Boy, did they have a life experience. Um, but, you know, things like that you'll never forget. And you'll always, you know, it's a great way to uh, take what you learn in the classroom and apply it like all internships are. But this is at a, a very global uh, level where you're working hand in hand with people from around the world. And it's a way that it really installs how sports brings people together. I mean, I, I literally was working with Russians, Iranians, Afghanistan, you know, people from all over. And the one thing that the students take from it is like our media is often biased. You know, it's hard to sit in the classroom and explain that media can be biased, but they really saw it firsthand with this World Cup. Um, they felt so welcome. They So much of what we heard about um, conditions over there were not quite what um, they experienced. But, you know, at the Olympic Games, we collect data for the IOC. So they're really understanding how data impacts decisions moving forward. So each one of these experiences that we have, they, it's something that they take um, and can apply to their curriculum. Will, how do you guys approach internships and real world experiences for your for your students as they as they make their way into career paths and sports management? Yeah, experiential learning is at the core of what we do and always has been. I think, I, as it, just as Lisa mentioned there, I mean, that's an amazing program, getting getting students out and teaching them things on the ground in that fast-paced environment is a very unique way to um, feel yourself getting better at something quicker than you might otherwise in class, right? So um, we've injected a lot of our different classes with um, with industry design briefs. So we'll, like in our sports marketing class, we'll work, we've worked with Octagon for almost 20 years to host what we affectionately call the Octagon Bowl, where sort of like a Super Bowl, um, teams go, uh, student teams compete against each other with a real live brief that they've been given by one of um, uh, Octagon's clients and those have varied over the years. So each of our classes I think has um, a really strong emphasis on the first four or five weeks being leading with theory and, and the why behind something before we get to the um, the fun, you know, more, more more buzzworthy stuff of what's happening in the real world every day. I think we want the students to understand why and how those decisions are being made and asking the right questions around why policy is the way it is. Um, so foundation and theory, and then we usually lead in with client work. But in terms of internships, I mean, I'll say, I think COVID has kind of changed the way students seek, source, and complete internships. I mean, that was always a summer-led endeavor. If you came in with them, it was great for your application. If you left with one, it was great for your job prospects. There's now dozens upon dozens of sports properties and entities who are offering students the ability to work for credit or for pay in semester, um, You know, which can be a little dangerous when you're juggling that with studies and everything else, but you can go through a two-year master's program now and have more than one internship that can position you really well. So we try to stress to students, again, that comes back to networking purposefully. That comes back to people knowing you as well as you knowing people. That's just as important. Um, and, and don't just choose any internship. Be purposeful about what's the right one for you. What's going to set you up to our earlier discussion around, you know, where your skills and values are. Don't just acquire anything for the resume. Be, be very intentional about what, where it's going to um, where it's going to lead you coming out of the experience. Okay. And David, we, we, I know how important internships are to the program at St. John's. Um, talk about it. Talk about the importance the program puts on students getting those real world experiences. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you get my multi-time per semester, hey, opportunity to go behind the scenes at the USTA, at uh, Madison Square Garden, at UBS, at, um, you know, all these different places. So, yeah, I mean, we do we do a lot of the same kinds of activities that that Lisa and will do. I guess to to just try to draw a little bit of a, a contrast, 
at our undergraduate level, we we require students to do internships. Uh, you know, as Will was just saying, you know, if you, if you have these experiences, this is going to have you better prepared. More items on your resume, more experiences, you're going to be better prepared when it's when it comes to getting jobs. So we all are in recognition of that. At our graduate level, we we don't require them, and of course, a, a lot of graduate students they've already got experiences. Uh, many of them may have um, uh, um, GA positions and, and and some of these, but again. At, as as again, as both Lisa and Will were just kind of pointing out, you know, some of the networking importance, you know, giving them that opportunity to, okay, um, we're not going to hand you anything on a silver platter. I mean, this is, you know, St. John's is a little bit different of an institution from from UMass and and GW, and um, in fact, all three of us are, are quite different institutions. Um, you know, we serve a a, a, a a very different population, a very uh, diverse population, one of the most diverse universities in in the United States, and so. You know, we don't want to necessarily hand deliver these things to our students. We will open the doors, but again, we want to create within students that 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 fire to go out there and do some of this on their own. To to make those, you know, if you have a guest speaker in your class, go and network with them afterwards. You know, contact them, find them on LinkedIn. Um, you know, take advantage of the resources that are there um, and then you know pour your own uh, metaphorical fuel on top of them and then really make it happen uh, and so with a lot of our students this this i think really instills in them uh, a, a desire to, to and an understanding of the necessity to work hard um, you know and if you want to be successful in sport you've got to work hard you've really got to go after that you know create those networks uh, and if you do that and you become good at it, you know, you can definitely be successful in 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 getting jobs and opportunities and careers in, in sports. And if you don't mind, I'd like to um, plug the Sports Industry Networking and Career Conference. And I think, Tim, you spoke at it once. Um, I did. Yeah, once or twice. But it's been going on for 21 years. And it's a place where students can come and meet and actually, you know, have one-on-one -on -one interviews with over a hundred industry professionals from teams and agencies and leagues. And so, and but I'm so impressed with the people who come to the SYNC conference because they make that effort and you know they're they're hustling. And that's what it takes to break in. You can't just, you know, do the books <laughs> and that's it to get into this business. So normally when we close a segment with guests, we ask them a couple questions. And we're not going to do that this time. And those questions are, how'd you get your start and career advice? You guys have spent this entire segment giving amazing advice uh, to would-be students, uh, you know, and particularly graduate students, um, but people exploring this space, as well as uh, giving us a little insight into your background and how you arrived where you did. So thank you certainly for that. So we'd like to close a little differently on this segment and give you an opportunity to talk about any specific success stories that you want to that you'd like to highlight. We'll start with you, David, whether that's individuals that have moved, matriculated through the program uh, and gone on to certain heights within the industry or recognition that the program has achieved. However you guys define success, share it with our listeners. Um, sure, I'm gonna take a little twist on this because it's kind of like choosing one's favorite I child. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm in no position to, 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 to do that. Um, but at the same point in time to, to, to give it my, uh, you know, 100% try, one of the things that that I think is important is, you know, we've at St. John's, we've been able to really take advantage of, of you know, the New York opportunity and the, the opportunities afforded to, to 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 students who are who are in this area. Um, and so this is, I think, allowed us to be pretty successful in 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 helping a lot of our students, uh, you know, opening doors to uh, a lot of a lot of organizations and giving them opportunities to do in semester summer and, and, and otherwise types of internships. Um, but at the same point in time, kind of, you know, taking a little bit more of a step of what I was what, what I was just discussing, my my sense of of students who've been successful uh, is. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow from Lisa Hustle. Um, I was trying to avoid that earlier, but she mentioned it, so I, I'm just gonna use it. Um, and grit, um, uh, you know, hustle and grit, I think, are two of the most important factors. That when I look at students from St. John's who who've got been successful, who've gotten, you know, right out of school, get, you know, uh, we had one recently who got an uh, kind of a VP job at at MLS. 
um, you know, right, right out of school, um, you know, just, just an amazing young man, um, you know, and, and with some of the, some of the diversity programs, uh, Major League Baseball's um, got a really, really good one. We've had several students who've been extremely successful um, that when you look at some of the background characteristics, um, their, their willingness to do anything, um, you know, and to work hard, that, that, that hard hustle, hard work, um, I think is really important. And then when a challenge arises, the willingness to, okay, what are my paths to overcome this? Um, keep going. You know, if something doesn't go right, what do I need to do to continue to be success, uh, successful? This is kind of a, a greater grittiness. I, I don't want to steal from the Philadelphia um, mascots or anything like that uh, with that. Um, but I think these are these are two of the most important characteristics. And and perhaps if I set the table for another question later, I mean, we certainly could talk about, you know, innovation. You know, we've talked about R and, you know, some of the technology that we all love. Um, you know, I be I think there's a lot of cool technology that's out there that if students to learn about some of it, that can be really helpful when it comes to, to pursuing careers and opportunities. Thanks, David. Will, how, what what success stories would you like to share? Yeah, I'm trying to keep these. I was thinking before this call of how to organize that answer, and I don't want to be too long winded, but I, I'll sort of break them up into two buckets. I guess one would be um, to David's point, when you see students who you were with day one, who had an idea of maybe where they wanted to go, but had no idea what the path into sports looked like for them, um, especially an international student or a student maybe with less experience, and you're crafting that career journey with them. Uh, we have a we had a student of ours who got a, a sports business journal 30 under 30 award this year, who just represented such an intensely gritty six to seven year trek through sports, jumping from agency to the NBA to MLB, keeping himself in the running despite so many no's and hurdles and challenges. And so those moments when you see students actualize that career and then want to give back and pay it forward to current students. I mean, that's that's the secret sauce of academia. People ask me why I'm in at UMass and not working in the after 10 years in industry. And so that that's a big part of that answer for me is um, to see students mature into the person they want to be in sports and then want to give back intensely to a current student's experience is phenomenal. Um, I think also just for us, we've changed some of the ways that we um, recruit and bring voices into Amherst. Um, you know, we're not in New York City, we're not in DC, we're not uh, in a location necessarily that um, is going to pull people in who just who want to be in the city. We're, we're in the Berkshires of Western Mass. So we've really pretty um, intensely gotten ahead of some of uh, our affinity partnerships with WISE and uh, SCENE, which is the Sports and Entertainment Equity Network. Um, these partners uh, work with us to uh, allow us to message and have access to their community members and then bring them in for interviews um, with assistantships and financial aid to look at UMass and to understand how we want to invest in their future. Um, so, you know, when I went through the program X years ago, there were not that many women in that my class and not many underrepresented minorities in my class. Uh, I don't want to speak for every class, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But at this point, we're over 50 percent women and, you know, almost a third of the program is now underrepresented minority students. And you can just see how that changes the conversations in the room uh, around any class, whether it's law, marketing, analytics, different questions are asked, different priorities are put on the table. You know, what used to be maybe like an allied group is now you know, having to really think about things, looking across the room at their peers. And those success stories to me are take time to develop. They don't turn on overnight, but it's been really wonderful to see um, how our discourse organically in the classroom has changed at UMass. Um, there's a lot more to be done. I'm not, you know, patting us on our back and saying the job's done on that. It's just, that's been really fun and a success that we're really proud of. Appreciate that. And Lisa, we'll have you close out that segment with uh, your thoughts on on success stories from GW. But it's so true. I mean, the thing that I like best is following our alumni. And, you know, for 32 years, I've been keeping up with these alums and I've been helping them not only get that first job, but transition to the second and third and 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 up the ladder and especially the women. I feel like I've been able to be a mentor. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've continued to work throughout having my my children and, um, you know, balancing that career. And, you know, it's really hard for, 
for women with children to be at games 42 nights, you know, and and the, the travel schedule and everything like that. So I've tried to help them through that transition and um, and also some cases where I went, I don't know whether I should call it harassment or inequities uh, that come across. I, I feel like I'm that sounding board for them. And and I've had men come to you know, the same thing. Um, sometimes they've had some challenges. So I feel like I can take my experiences and help our, our alumni um, move up and also move in different positions, like moving from the corporate sales of a team over to the brand side or moving from pros to co um, college. So, you know, I also like to see um, how we can help our alumni uh, move in different ways, uh, upwards, laterally, and then also from different sports to entertainment or entertainment back to sports. So um, the, the tools that we give them and the knowledge they have is very transferable. And so that's what I like. With with leaders like yourselves in, in higher education, I, I feel very confident that we, we're in good hands for the next generation of leaders in sport management. I, I want to thank you, David, Will, and Lisa, for taking time. I know that it's the beginning of the semester. Will, I know you've got a little bit more time, but it's never it's never a downtime um, when you're in academia. So I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. I, I think this has been a really insightful and entertaining discussion. So thank you. Tim, not at all trying to be cute, but that was a very educational discussion. Um, big thank you to Lisa and David and Will and to their programs of George Washington St. John's and the Eisenberg School of Management at UMass Amherst uh, for joining the show for what we hope will at the very least be uh, an annual episode on the academic side of the sports business. I also want to do a bit of a shout out to Andy Clark, who runs the sport management program at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, we were hoping to have him on the show as well. He had some health things he needed to take care of, wasn't able to do it, but he runs a great program uh, out there at DePaul in Chicago. So uh, just wanted to say get well soon, Andy. So it has been a full episode, of course, uh, but let's go ahead and take a peek like we like to do at the end of each show to the weeks ahead. Tim, what do you have your eye on? Uh, first of all, best wishes for a speedy recovery for Andy. Hopefully we can get him on in the future. Uh, second thing is... Um, you may not believe this. I know my wife and kids don't believe it, but there are people in this world who actually call me professor and do so without sarcasm or a sense of irony. So I will just uh, I, I will just go on record with that. What am I looking forward to? Um, I do <laughs> I do want to see if Brett Maher suits up for the uh, Dallas Cowboys this weekend. Um, wow, um, talk about spitting a bit. All right, missed. First time in league history since they kept records of this. Four missed extra points by a kicker. I'd be shocked if he's on the roster this Sunday. Um, but more importantly, I'm going to be watching the Eagles-Giants because I do want to see Terry Lefton um, either gloat uh, obnoxiously or or sulk um, passionately, uh, depending on the outcome of that game. But um, he is the most passionate and, dare I say, and I say this with all all love and affection, the most obnoxious sports fan that I that I can call a friend. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Cowboys kicker, the Mar thing, was one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen in an actual sport. I mean, it was just remarkable. The Lefton thing is comical because one of the great things about Terry and the way he is about the – any other team besides the Eagles, particularly when they're playing the Cowboys or the Giants, is how no matter how much shit he talks and says, if things go the wrong way for him, he doesn't care. It's not <laughs> like he feels bad about it or goes, oh, I got to eat my words. It just keeps getting stronger. It's just a beautiful thing to behold. No, it's true. It's true fandom. What about um, yourself? What do you want? So, so the Australian Open is in full swing in Melbourne, and the field does include 
Novak Djokovic, the nine-time winner of the Happy Slam, or what's known as isn't, the Happy Slam. Isn't it amazing that it was a year ago that we were it's, talking about him being deported? How quickly time flies. Yeah, I mean, it was all that craziness about the deportation last year, but everything's kind of moving forward. He has a chance to win his 22nd Grand Slam, tie Rafa Nadal. Um, uh, in that discussion, nine-time winner at this event, I mean, I think there's a pretty good chance that uh, he does come away with it. But Nadal seems to be healthy and playing well. Uh, also, and a lot of other great stories on the uh, on the women's side as well. But so, with all of that in mind, one of the things I'm hoping to do over the next week uh, is dive into the Breakpoint series on Netflix, which is kind of the tennis version of Drive to Survive, the very mm-hmm. successful Formula One series. Um, I've heard great things about it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And because last year was so dramatic, starting with the Australian Open and the Novak Djokovic situation of his deportation and his anti-vax position. I think it's going to be pretty fascinating, so I'm really looking forward to it. Little uh, little trivia tidbit: first time since 1999 that there is not a Williams sister or a yeah. Roger Federer in the field at the Australian Open. That's yeah. a lifetime in sports. Yeah, it's really really a remarkable run by uh, the, the Williams sisters, and obviously Roger going down as as one of the greatest ever to play the game, and certainly one of the classiest. Um, so that brings us to a close of this week's show. Thanks again to our guests, Lisa Delpy, Narati, Will Norton, and David Hedlund for a really, really fun discussion. Uh, thank you mostly to you, our listeners, for listening and engaging with us on a variety of fronts. We do ho- hope that you will share the show uh, with others that you feel may find uh, the content, something that they want to listen to as well. So until next time, I'm DP, he's McGee, and we'll talk soon. 